0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Jason Wolf, who from his early days as a young officer in the Special Forces to working with breakthrough startups and at-risk youth today, through his many tech startup and executive roles, he seeks to make a positive impact on the world around him. He is passionate about translating grand visions into effective strategies, execution framework, and teamwork that lead to financially and socially impactful success. On today's show we talk about lessons learned from having an entrepreneurial father, what skills transfer from the special forces to the startup world, what is it like to be at a company that raises a billion dollars only to collapse, what is the importance of people and a network in a company's success, how is AI helping to secure people, and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Now let's begin. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jason, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm super excited about this episode. You're introduced by James Cape, we loved his episode. Crazy stories. Everyone, I definitely recommend going back to our archives and checking it out. I'm not going to say you have a lot to live up for, but it, it was James Cape and the Intel Alumni Network, who is also a great uh, proponent, sponsor of this podcast. So once again, thank you, Intel. But Jason, I know your background, but can you tell our audience your background? Can you tell us your story here, what you've been up to, what you're working on, but really that history?
1: Okay, great. First of all, I promise not to live up to James Cape because it's a hard act to follow. But I, as you can tell from my accent, am not native to uh, California or the US. I'm South African born and was uprooted as a kid from South Africa, nice, comfortable living uh, in apartheid times where there wasn't that much uh, risk or problem growing up there, and was taken to Israel, which, of course, was one of the seminal moments of my life. I fell in love immediately country that gets into your blood and you can't leave, spent till age 26, including high school traditional stuff, and then spent eight years in the special forces and decided to leave for a year, one year. That was the plan. And that was back in 1994.
0: And I ended up leaving for 24 years. So let's even backtrack there. What brought you from South Africa to Israel? I know it's your, at that time, your parents and their career Were they in tech? Were they in, what brought them from one to the other?
1: Great question. And it was forced childhood movement. It wasn't, this is like human trafficking. I was a happy six-year-old in South Africa. It's today we look back and we say apartheid, but back then as a kid, as you're growing up, you don't know anything different. Life is comfortable financially, everything's great. My parents actually, my mother's a Holocaust survivor. And my dad is from South Africa, and they actually, at the age of 18, they're the same age, each one of them left South Africa and England, respectively, and they met in Israel. So for them, it wasn't a career choice. It was like a mission of life because they're Jewish, because my mother's a Holocaust survivor. It was a mission of life of theirs to make enough money
0: to live and spend the rest of their lives in Israel. At that time, South Africa was pre-developed, the economy, great. Did they see, and Israel right now, it's developed, it's amazing. Did they see the opportunities in the future way ahead or no. especially raising no. a family?
1: No, it wasn't a financial decision whatsoever because my dad started from nothing in South Africa, built up a business, a really good shoe business, and He basically had to give everything up because you couldn't take money out of South Africa in the 70s. The only thing you could do is you could actually invest in real estate. So he decided okay, I'm going to move to Israel, start from scratch, but I'm going to take a little bit and buy a little house that's far away from Tel Aviv in this suburbia area. Today, of course, that area is very developed. He founded a real estate company that became very successful. So that's also one of the trends in my life that turned me to entrepreneurship is I saw how hard he worked and how much he loved kind of developing new businesses and all these projects. So it was really interesting to see. But no, it wasn't a decision on, oh, it's going to be a huge success, Israel. They were in the army in the late 50s, which was economically the worst time in, in, in history for Israel. They went back to South Africa to earn just enough to survive in Israel. So when they came, they gave up a lot in South Africa to start new in Israel.
0: Taking that risk, that's incredible. But it sounds like you grew up in an entrepreneur family. Oh, yeah. And your father started a business. In a way, he exited and transferred and then started another endeavor. And you got to see that go from nothing. And at your age, very impressionable you saw every step. What were some of the key takeaways that you learned then that you were able to use later in life? I think for me, my dad
1: was such a huge influence because his people skills, what he did in South Africa first as a shoe business, from starting from a shoe salesperson to thinking about, okay, what's needed in this market, what he did He worked for someone else who used to import from Europe because there was no local manufacturing. The white population in South Africa at the time was very well off. So it was high Pierre Cardin, and you might know some of these brands, very high in brands. And what he observed is that when there were seconds, there were always defects and you had a certain percentage of shoes that are not perfect for sale. They used to send them back to Europe and get refunds at 40%, 50% of the price. So he went to his boss and he said, you know what? I want to take those. I'll pay you a little bit more than what you're paying with all the hassle of shipping back. And I'm going to sell them totally in different market, set up shop next to today. They're known as these kind of the townships, because the Afri- at the time they could only live in, in certain areas. And they used to make shoes themselves. They would never buy shoes because they were too expensive. But when he took these cheaper shoes, he found an audience that was looking for pre-made shoes, European shoes, and they might have had a defect in in the lace or in the sole or something. And he started to sell to those people. And that kind of launched him. When we left in 74, he already had five stores, downtown Johannesburg. He had a lot of workers and that. So we lived in a beautiful house by then, but he started from nothing. And he went on his own, left the company he worked for and started from scratch. And then the same thing happened in Israel with the real estate business. He could have found a job in his industry in Israel to ease the way in. But he said, no, I'm going to look at the industry that's growing. I needed a place to, to live. I bought a house with the rest of my money in a faraway area. And today they call that town in Israel, they call it Ranana Fontaine, which in Afrikaans means Ranana village, like South Africa. It has a 20% population that's South African because when he started his real estate business, he got people from South Africa and later on the US and England to come and buy in Ranana in this town in Israel.
0: So right there, he saw a market that wasn't being served he saw an opportunity, he took full advantage. I'm guessing there wasn't much capital involved because he had relationships and he was able to leverage those relationships. Started off with just one location built to five. In that time, how important do you think his people skills were in all those steps? Because it also sounded like he kept those relationships when he moved to Israel and then the 20%, the investment. So it sounds like his whole thing was relationship building. Until this moment, I always put networks and relationships up in my top
1: three of skills that you need to succeed in any kind of entrepreneurship or in, in my view in life. But till you spoke about it that way, I didn't realize how much that is number one for me because of him. I knew it's number one for me. Because it's always proven itself. I've done maybe six startups and been in two, three executive roles. It's always been about the people. Until you spoke about it and I reflected on what my dad's story is, I didn't realize where I got that from and why it's like that for him. Because for him, I used to you know, just follow his footsteps and go to meetings, sit in the side of the room because he wouldn't let me speak. And... It was about watching him work with people that now I connect and I know how important that is. It's all about the people skills, because at the end of the day, the people that have the pain that we're solving a problem for as entrepreneurs are people, the people that need to solve that problem or to come together. And you can't do this alone. I've been in three of the startups that I've been in fairly early on almost day one have grown to what today they call unicorn status at the time in the 90s and then in 2010. And then again, hopefully now there's one in the way. But they've always started from a bunch of people that somehow together with complementary skills have managed to find that, that big story and,
0: and build something meaningful with customers, with partners, with employees. I also am curious about just deep diving. It sounds like almost like you were in the ultimate situation, whereas many people, they go through life looking for those mentors, and you had that in in your father. When you were watching him grow, well, the first business, but then the second, the real estate, when it was international money coming from South Africa into Israel and, and that cross border. What was the experience there, see, those conversations, those times, especially with the technology back then, because it wasn't the internet. Yeah, there was no technology.
1: Actually, my passion for tech, which I didn't even know until I left in 94, the army and came for one year here, I didn't realize how deep it was because for my bar mitzvah, I got an FX-81, which is, as James and some of the guys from Intel, it's a little... Is it a calculator? Or what it's, is it? a, it's a computer, a PC, the first PCs, which you used to connect into a tape recorder that used to store the data and to a TV. And you'd basically have a command line prompt. So the first time I took a basic language was computer basic. I took a computer course. I did for my father's real estate office. I built a simple sequence to find apartments, two bedroom, three bedroom, because they used to have a Rolodex with a divider. And if the agent wanted to show a customer two bedroom apartments, they would roll it down to that two, the number two in the divider and the cards would be there. A new property would come. You'd put it in the divider. And I I said, oh, that's a great exercise to do on my new computer. So I built a little, what today could be done in a Google sheet, just built it on that so someone could just type into, and then it would show line items of all the properties. So today it sounds stupid, but then it was a really nice project. And as a 13, 14-year-old, I was so enamored with what, what technology can do. And later, so this is, you know, 19... 81, 82. So when I came here 13 years after that, at 26, suddenly I just saw this world of technology and I'm running ahead. And it turned from one year where I came as a kind of a break in my planned life. My planned life was military, probably a stint with the Israeli internal secret service. And my dream was to be an ambassador for Israel. That was my I knew I wanted to do it from the age of 16, 17, because I love cultures. I love people. I love the different languages. I knew that's my path. But at 26, I said, you know what? I'll take one year after eight years of break, and then I'll come back to the path that I should be on. And that's when I fell in love with technology when I got here and I saw how much more you can impact the world by being
0: here and doing technology. So that's. So let's go back. First off, it's probably amazing that you were the, the IT department for, the, for your father's company at such an early age, but you'd mentioned special forces. Can we go th- dive into that part of your life? How long were you in the special forces for? What skills did you get from that that carried over? What was it like?
1: I can tell you, but then I'd have to kill you no seriously when i went into the special forces I was 18 every israeli goes to the military for eight for three years and you know i came from not the traditional special forces background at the time it was mostly people that came from if you know what kibbutzim and moshavim it's these are villages they're they're more like kids that grew up doing agriculture tough kids and things i was a city boy and it wasn't uh, that tough i was lucky to be good at running and i was a good runner So I got into the special forces. It literally changed my life because when you go into a unit like the unit I was, it's a unit that Bibi Netanyahu, Naftali Bennett, the current prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, quite a few famous people. And then a lot of entrepreneurs, very successful entrepreneurs came from. What you learn there is three key things, I think. One is, the the, the slogan of the unit is, he who dares wins. Now, can you think of a better slogan for entrepreneurs than, he who dares wins? So it's that. And the second thing is, a lot of military is short-term. It's a quick operation and doing things. This unit does long-term projects, very secret projects, long-term projects. And those projects are, you need all the things that you do in a startup. So let's say you've got to be somewhere for three hours in a night, hundred miles in deep in enemy territory, and you've got to do something. Now, the first time when they envision what needs to be done and they know they've got a window of three hours, it might take 24 hours to do that same job in Israel at the time. So you actually now going to spend six months, a year, training, perfecting, changing things, bringing different technologies, because your vision is it's going to, you've only got three hours. You can't, you've got a couple of hours that you have to get there in the dark. You've got a couple of hours you have to get out. And for those three hours, so you have to go from something that takes 24 hours to something that takes three hours and it's like a startup. People say, no, that can't be done. It's impossible. You'll never get it that. Yeah, you'll improve it a few hours. I think that's what makes so many successful politicians, entrepreneurs that came from this specific special forces unit because you're working on things that are basically daring. Second, there are things that take a long time and you're incrementally and sometimes radically changing things So the fact of throwing something out and trying something new the first time an ATV was used and it had to be silent. All kinds of things like that is tons of examples like that of things that we've done over the years that gives you that, on the one hand, the patience that you need to develop something big and the thoughtfulness. And then the other side is the daringness and the sparks and the actual thing. And then, of course, the third thing, which is what everybody thinks of the special forces, is just the raw discipline and tenacity, not sleeping, working day in, day out, all those things. So I think those three things are,
0: are to me, they followed me my whole career, my whole life. For our listeners, there's an episode with Kisan talking about Agile. I definitely recommend everyone look at, listen to that episode and try to compare what was said by Kisan, what was just said by Jason, because it sounds like there's overlap. Okay, so question for you. How does the special forces, how do they kind of screen people to find the ones that are able to be adaptable, leaders, mentally strong, all those qualifications needed to execute that three hour mission that's life or death, train that long, everything? How do they screen the people and say, hey, these are the candidates?
1: That's a great question. One benefit that Israel has to find these people is it has the entire population. And people sometimes forget. People say, oh, Israel's got the best special forces in the world or the best army, the best pilots in the world. It's an easy no-brainer when you've got the entire population to screen. But it's a small population. It's 7 million roughly, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're not talking China. No, but if you took the entire Bay Area, all high school kids out of the Bay Area, and you said, okay. You don't have a choice. It's not a volunteer army, not a professional army. You are all going. You add to that the fact that everybody is super motivated. The culture drives you to do the best in the army because that's a fo- it's life or death, which is another thing that drives motivation. So you've got the best population to choose from. Now they do the selection. They look, of course, at. All aspects of the human, they look at their, you know, academics and their mental intelligence. There's tests that do that when you're in 10th grade, 11th grade, and then 12th grade, they start sending you to like these, you see these in the Navy SEALs or some, they do trainings like five day where you're just a white shirt with a number and you've got all these psychologists and instructors that are sitting around. They're giving you individual missions. They're giving you team missions. So they're seeing how you, on your own, you're figuring things out. And no sleep, you're dead tired, you're 20 kilo or 50, 60 pounds, sand. You have to move them for one. Sometimes it makes zero sense. But so they're testing all those attributes through two, three years, not two, three years ongoing, but through high school. And then you get into about an 18-month to two-year program where you don't even know what the unit does. You're still in, in training. So you go through such a long training and there you might start as a team as 20 and finish with 10. So even there, you're weeding out people along the way. Not always you end up with those types of the best people, but a lot of times you're going to end up with people that are pretty strong mentally, pretty strong physically, pretty strong with working with other people. Because all those attributes, they will not compromise. And also that's a great thing for entrepreneurship because when you're building a company, the slogans and values and choosing the right people goes back to our previous point. It's the most important thing.
0: So let's talk about the companies, six companies. Was there, when any of these companies, what was your kind of screen and vetting method to decide the initial team? And actually before that, Let's even go back a little bit. Tell us about your, your time in Silicon Valley when you arrived here and that evolution of starting in one company, going to another. Let's get a background. So I'll,
1: I'll do it like high level just so you can see. So in 94, I make a decision to leave for one year. I travel the world to think what I want to do. I didn't know I want to do tech. I stopped in a friend of mine, lived in Paris. I stopped in different places. I met a... I knew him from high school but when I was in high school this kid went to study in university at the age of 15 brilliant kid called Shai Agassi maybe you, you haven't but he's pretty well known in Israel and a very successful entrepreneur since and I came over here and when he said you know what I've got this little startup I don't know what a startup is and we've got one customer you don't have experience in technology or computers but I think your people skills will let you manage that one customer well. And by the way, let me show you what we're working on. And he showed me this thing called Netscape Navigator. And he said, This is going to change the world. I said, Shy, come on, let's lee- connect. And he downloads a little bit of text. He does a search, like a, a very rudimentary command line search. He said, This is happening over the wires. It's happening like this is the internet. So I said okay whatever the guy is very charismatic very smart and I enjoy his company I'll come try this thing Anyway that was today we call that a big data company in the late 90s of silicon valley the dot com days we basically built a internet interface to the old databases to databases that used to be client server you'd sit with a monitor and connect to a server and bring data back and forth and he built a web browser version that would sit against those things and then you know that was my first in- entry it was called top tier like the top tier and it was an interface for businesses to access databases but through the web was sold first to barn which was a competitor of sap which you've probably heard of and he's actually a brilliant entrepreneur he managed to sell it both to barn And then we got equity back as I was an employee, he was a founder, and then we sold it after the dot-com crash, we sold it to SAP. The whole company was sold to SAP, top tier. And it became, today it's probably a multi-billion dollar product within SAP that's called NetWeaver, but it's the underlying web platform that sat on what used to be client server. And Shai became the board member that was responsible for all SAP products. And then he subsequently stayed for about five, six years. I stayed pretty much the same. I actually left after he left to establish the second startup that I joined, which was called Better Place. And Better Place, for those who don't know or don't remember, is probably one of the biggest failures in tech history. We raised... Uh, Close to a billion dollars, blew through it in five years. Amazing vision. It was battery swap stations basically to end oil. We realized in 2007, eight, here in Los Altos around the table, that in order to get rid of oil, you're going to have to get rid of gas for transportation. Because once you stop refining crude for gas, you're probably not gonna use it much for anything else. So we said electric vehicles are the way to go. And there were really only two crazy entrepreneurs that thought that, Elon Musk and Shai Agassi. So pretty much the same timeframe. We started Better Place, raised a lot of money. We built this model where you could replace an entire battery within three minutes. So like the experience you have in a gas station, you drive in, you get a full tank of gas, a, a new battery, and you don't have to pay for the battery because it's part of, it's like the Exxon of electric vehicles. So anyway, that we did for five years. I ran Better Place North America. And uh, unfortunately, we made some people mistakes. Again, back to people. And uh, there's a book about it called Totaled. Amazing experience,
0: but it didn't go the way we wanted it to go. So let's go to the beginning. So five years, going, raising and going through a billion dollars. How are you raising that money on a dream? Because there's no way, at least for the first year or so, you actually had any models of battery swap stations or anything. It was just all, hey, this is a vision. This is the future. How are you raising money on that? How are you having conversations?
1: You have to meet and bring Shai on your podcast because this guy is both brilliant and very eloquent. So he wrote a white paper on how you end oil very detailed on everything that's needed and where this was 20 2007 so about 15 years later pretty much if you look around you see that the inevitability that he described you could actually read this white paper and you see that today it's a no-brainer back then it was like electric vehicles 100 mile range was the the extent it was a thousand dollars per kilowatt hour of battery and if you think about electric vehicles, they've got between 20 to 100 kilowatt hours. So you, you, the economics, like we spoke about these missions, the economics didn't make sense back then. But he knew the inevitability, Intel, Moors Law. Not really, it's more, it's going to be a little slower, but going from 1,000, today we're at about $100 a kilowatt hour. So that 10x that happened in the last 15 years was, he knew it's an inevitable curve. computers that went into we built the first operating system for a vehicle today it's like every vehicle autonomous vehicles all these other all the first chargers, charging stations so he had this all figured out in a business model and
0: that's how you go and you raise big money from big investors okay so you raised a billion dollars went through that and yet after people still want to talk to you still want to do business with you how was the transition to the third company
1: well Luckily for at least me personally, because the company, of course, went bankrupt, but towards the end, for some reasons, we don't need to get into shy was let go by the board and they tried to turn it around because the burn rate was very high. And anyway, long story short, there was the investors tried to recover and regain course. And I was GM of North America. I was actually asked to come back to Israel then and lead the Israeli operations and I said, no, I think what we're doing here in, in North America made sense because I had a federal, state and local grants to do a 60 vehicle four battery swap stations around the Bay Area. And this was a 10 year profitable project. But in, in view of what we were doing in the rest of the world, it was a tiny project. It wasn't this huge bombastic project. And we didn't get the funding of hundreds of millions that some of the companies got in 2009 from the Recovery Act. I don't know if you remember this time. There was a lot of money doled out during the crash of 2008-9. And we got 20 million. We didn't get 200 million. So we did this project, and it was an amazing project. But when the company decided to refocus, they said, close it down and bring bring the company, close it down so we can focus on Israel, on proving the point. So I managed to sell off the charging networks that we had in Hawaii. I managed to, to with the team, kind of transition all the money back to the government here. The governor currently was the mayor of San Francisco at the time. And so we basically closed shop with a very eloquent Exit from for everybody. No one was let go. All my employees found them jobs, and so it, it went in the sunset. Two months later, the company went bankrupt globally. So, from that at least, back to the people side, I think personally, I came out okay. Still, one of the biggest scars uh, of my uh, tech career is that we didn't manage to with this inevitable move to electric vehicles. We didn't really manage to build a, uh, a multi multi billion dollar business. More so, not because of the money, but more so because of the fact that it would have accelerated this transition, which now is taking a long time, probably would have happened a lot faster.
0: If that company had started, say, two years later, would the end have been the same, you think? Or by then, because I know it's just a little bit of time, but how um, much did technology T- trade? Tesla no idea? is
1: a trillion dollar company. Mm-hmm. We started pretty much the same time. So, People say timing, but I think timing is is a decision by people. How much do you invest in a given year versus how much do you time? It's like the wave. When do you catch the wave? The wave is gonna come. If you paddle too fast and you get there too quickly, you're gonna you're gonna have a dud. So it's all about timing, but it's not timing that's objective from the outside and you can't do anything about it. You have to Pace your paddling. Our mistake, not so much the problem with with the timing as an objective outside
0: factor. Jason, the transition from the billion dollar company, you exited third company. Why not take some time off? Why not relax a year? Why not relax two? What? Why was the transition short? Long? Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, the transition was instant because what we did in the next company called Collaborative, Collaborate EV was we created clearing between charging stations of electric vehicles. As a CEO, the North American CEO of Better Place, I worked with other companies here, and we realized even though we compete basically for becoming a fueling station, if we don't work together, the experience is never gonna compete with gas stations. So we basically built a, a network clear company that basically allowed people to charge at all the networks. At all the there was only three at the time, but at the three charging networks. And afterwards another one besides Better Place Went Bankrupt. So ended up just the company that is today the largest charging company in the world actually just adopted that and and that became theirs.
0: And then I went on to the fourth. So that was so your whole career up into this point really started mostly around the EV that space. Was that intentional or it sounds like you just got happenstance from the first company, the founder, this was the second one, you went with him. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, And
1: the first company was IT, enterprise, big data. It was totally different software only to better place where I did follow Shai and on this great vision mission. But because it was part of my DNA to do things that are world changing, things that are going to have a positive impact on the world, it was very easy for me to make the choices that I made. And then after we, we let go of Collaborative and moved on, at that time, I was always thinking, when do I go back to Ezra? And by then, my two oldest daughters were already in middle school and high school, so I couldn't really uproot and move. I said, okay, I'm going to continue and do something additional from here. I ended up going back to SAP. And leading their global technology partners. So it was an exciting role where I could then bring what middle 2015, cloud was becoming big, user experience through mobile devices, analytics, big data with AI was becoming big. So I took this opportunity to lead a very senior, strong team within a big company on kind of a more aggressive than a traditional big company would do towards changing those things within SAP. And I ended up spending the next three years there working on partnerships like Apple and Google and AWS that today are pretty obvious, but back then they weren't the most obvious for a company that's an enterprise resource ERP company to do. At the time, Intel was an obvious partner and uh, all the big five Accentures and Capgemini and those. But it wasn't these new tech giants that were partners. So it was a really exciting time. And then in 2018, I moved on and I I was going to go back to Israel with SAP because SAP has a big presence there. But a friend of mine from Silicon Valley, who is one like Shai, is another great entrepreneur called Amit Haller, who actually, when I started with SAP in 2015, told me about this great idea he has of. Changing the real estate agent model. Today it's a company that's very successful called Really. And at the time, 2015, I just joined SAP, so I couldn't jump on board with him. I kept in touch because he's a good friend and an amazing entrepreneur. And then finally in 2018, when I was about to move back to Israel, he said, yes, okay, you can travel back and forth. We want to start a new company in construction tech. And That's a company called Veev, V-E-E-V. That company basically takes the biggest problem we have today with real estate, which is the cost of building and the time it takes to build and cuts it to a quarter of the time to build and half the price with modular construction. So panelized construction, think of a wall that gets put together piece by piece with everything inside, the electrical, the plumbing, the everything, the front, everything's ready to go, that you just come with a flatbed truck on, a, on basically on the foundation, you start laying these walls and connecting them to each other. So that company I joined in 2018, or we actually started as a real estate partnership, we turned it into a tech company, amazing founders were there, built the company up. And today, hopefully, that's going to be the third major company that I had the opportunity to really start early on, work with founders or be part of the founding team and drive it towards a, something that's going to have a
0: global impact on, on the world. With the companies you chose to work at, was there a moment at the beginning when you said, I want to onboard, this is going to be successful? When did you start getting that Feeling that this is a right choice to dedicate my time to? Was it when you got to know the mission of the company, the founder's dreams, the founder? What was it that excited? Because I'm guessing at this time you had so many other options, so many other different ways to go. What was the the thing that made you go, I'm putting my time here?
1: For me, even the bigger companies, like back to SAP, people said, why are you going back to SAP? You can go and know, be chief customer, chief revenue, chief uh, strategy. You could found a company. You could do all these things back when I went back to SAP. For me, it's always the combination between the people and the mission. And it's not one, I said people are more important, so I'm going to correct myself. People is always the most important. But if those good people are not on a crazy important mission, then they're, a, they're probably not the right people. So it's always this combination of people and mission. Back to those 90s days when Chai showed me Netscape Navigator and told, I didn't have a sense of that as a earth changing, but I could look in his eyes and see the intellect and the passion and understand that when the world is connected, things are going to change. You don't know exactly how, but it's going to change. So jumping in early days of internet and then jumping in on transformation for society from carbon base to electrical base, those are mega missions. And doing it with great people is always going to increase the probability that mission will happen. Same thing in this, this company that, that two years ago in Corona, I stopped uh, being part of, Vive. Real estate is a trillion, multiple trillion dollars. In the U.S., we're missing 7 million housing. The reason we're missing so many housing units is because most industries went through digitization, went through technology. But if you think about construction, 80% cost labor. It takes years to build. So it has to, it's inevitable that's going to happen. The only question is going to be is, who is the, the right team that's going to make that happen? And that's why I'm betting on Amit Haller and the guys at VIV. But it's a really important thing to have both the people
0: and the mission aligned with something big, again, for me, not for everybody. And with that startup, big company, everything, most people, they're founders of their own company early on in their career, but your current company, tell us about what you're currently working on and tell us why now is the time to, to start it on your own. Be it, this was the first, this company now is the first time you're a founder, correct?
1: Not, not really. I I was a founder in collaborative. wasn't one of the bigger ones, but I've been a founder of two companies. This is the third. Vive. I was part of the really early. It was a partnership between three founders, and I joined them as the fourth, C level person, and yours chief revenue, chief customer. The reason I think, and again for me, it's it's also I've got a partner in this one. I'm not on on my own, who actually was one of the first developers in top tier, the first startup. So Gilad Paran, who's my partner and found, co-founder on Genie, it's called Genie, and I haven't told you what it does, but I'll keep that suspense for a little bit later. But Genie, I looked for a co-founder. I didn't believe in, in, in a model, not because I don't believe in myself as a founder, that, but I think what's more important is the ultimate success of a mission, And I believe that companies with multiple co-founders, two or three is probably the optimum, are going to be inevitably more successful. Now, of course, people will say, oh, but look at Elon Musk, look at Steve Jobs and things. But it's at the end of the day what your own personal belief is. I believe that you're stronger as a team. It's my special forces training and bringing different diverse skills to that. So, Genie, my current company, is founded, as I said, two years ago, Corona hit, and my regiment of flying one week here, one week in Israel was abruptly stopped after two and a half years. And I had to figure out okay, what am I going to do? Because my day job was here, and I would go to Israel to be with my family, and my life was there. So, I started to look around what I wanted to do. And like always, I needed a very big mission. I looked, it started from just looking at my parents and how their early 80s need to have some kind of security around them. They want to age in place at home. And I saw that as a major global trend, that it's very hard to age in place. And people that have worked their whole lives, were independent, are losing that and technology could actually solve that. So that was the trigger for Genie. Where it is today, Genie's is, an, is it's like a security agent, an AI, artificial intelligence, that sits and protects you on your mobile phone, on your laptops, on your tablets, in the cloud, basically watches over your communications. And of course, it could fit for any age. But as you get older, it's more vital that there's something there that watches over and can help you understand what's true and what's false. All the good stuff, the friends, the family that we want from this amazing digital technology, we've gone from being a society that's mostly frontal to a society that's mo- mostly digital. So all this great access to knowledge, to friendships, to social, to everything is great. But it comes with the risk of people taking advantage of it and pretending to be other people, impersonating. Stealing your identity, stealing money, hurting you emotionally, causing you actually to retract and become more closed, even though you have access to all this world. So genie sits there and allows all the good stuff to go through and all the bad stuff
0: to be blocked. That is a pretty big challenge you're you're facing there.
1: Yeah. But I think it's, I I do fast forward and 10 years from now, we're all going to need our personal genie in there. It's going to be there. It'll, like a genie, stay in the bottle when it doesn't need to come out. And when it needs, when we need it, when it needs to protect us, it's going to screen the communication instead of us. Instead of us now, do I click on this link? Do I answer this person? Is this a real email? This car warranty, is it true? This this social security call that says that I'm behind on payments. We all have this on a daily basis. We've gotten used to it, which is the worst case. Now, we've just started piloting this, but the first users, suddenly they're saying, I have this peace of mind. I used to get 20 calls a day. I'm getting one or two, and they're good ones. So we want to create that kind of change with Genie that everybody has this thing with them, protecting them when they need it.
0: So on this company versus the two that were before the three, that you were part of the co-founder in the early team that formed it. What are you doing different now from the lessons you learned then?
1: Oh, what a great question. I think the two key things that I'm doing differently is in those companies, we had a very strong conviction about the way to get to the end result. And sometimes that strong conviction, I think Peter Thiel said, an entrepreneur, and I love the sentence, has to have very strong convictions, but loosely held. And what that means is you have to have a very strong conviction because otherwise you're not going to move and you're not going to be tenacious and you're not going to do everything you need to do. But when facts or things tell you that you're wrong about something, you have to know when to let go and have another strong conviction. And I think so that's one thing that As I go towards this world, I have a very strong conviction that we all need this kind of artificial intelligence used to screen and make sure that we're not falling for impersonations and deep fake and anything like that. So we have to have this because humans are not going to be able to do that by themselves. They're not going to tell if it's true or fake. Here we sit in the same room, but when you're on the phone or your email or text or social media. Uh, It's just amazing. There's $26 billion a year lost through scams in the US. And we just take it for granted like a tax.
0: That should not be the case. I believe it. And just the whole, who do you, the person you're across from that, is that person real on Zoom? Everyone that's following the podcast, we just had our first artificial intelligence AI spokes video where we just had this person we typed in the sentences we want them to say happy valentine's day to silicon valley podcast and then it created this little video with a person that you couldn't have tell that it wasn't a real person
1: yeah and that's just going to be that's one of those inevitable trends it's going to get tougher and tougher banks telcos other companies customer service everywhere you look we're going to need to bring back trust because it's an online world and we need trust. We need to get rid of the deceptions. And the only way to do it is to create the ultimate AI truth from lies detector. And we believe it, it again, needs to be to every human needs one of these.
0: Jason, we're wrapping up on time here. What should we look for? What should we expect milestones or, or things to look out for in the next year or two with you and your company?
1: Of course, we want to look for millions and millions of people that are using Genie, and I'd love to see them do it. But in the shorter term, we're really focused on getting out the, the core tools that we use today, phone, text, and email. And once we have a Genie for phone, text, and email that can allow us to tell the good from the bad, that's going to be the major milestone this year. And the next year, of course, we're scaling the company to millions across the US, starting with US as a market that, of course, because of AI, you're focused on English, you're focused on where the technology is the most advanced. You might, of course, be missing a lot of people that are hurting out there in the world in different languages. But as technology grows and the deep tech around AI gets better
0: in the company, we'll be doing it for other languages. Fantastic. If any of our listeners wants to find out more about you and your company, what's a website they should visit? What's a Twitter handle they should follow? What's the best way to find out more information?
1: So the website is Life's Genie, www.lifesgenie.com. And Life's Genie is also on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. I don't tweet that much, so it's not Twitter, but uh, those are the channels that we...
0: All right, Jason, I want to thank you for your time here. I also want to thank James Cape, the group at the Intel Alumni Network, and everyone for continually supporting this channel and helping us grow. And Jason, on one of your visits in the future, maybe if I go to Israel, I'd love to have a follow-up interview with you. And Not
1: maybe, for sure. We said we were opening a branch in Israel of the podcast, no?
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. So everyone listening, uh, Jason is the representative in Israel. His episode, first episode will air shortly. It will be announced later. And you know, after Sean learns Hebrew, then we're going to... We're, we're going to make an NFT and a token drop and everything else for that episode <laughs> launch. So <laughs> actually, one announcement for everyone. Please follow us on iTunes. Give us a great review. Share with your friends. Check us out on the com. And for our listeners, if you're looking for an investment banker to help you with mergers, acquisitions, raising growth capital, or secondaries, reach out to me, my LinkedIn's in the show notes, and let's have a conversation. But with that, Jason, thank you for your time today Thanks, on the Silicon Sean. Valley Podcast. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only Before making any decisions, consult a professional.